Um, and yeah, no, 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 that's great. All right, I'm starting with a really simple question this morning. Um, but it's the question I think that's, that's key in this passage, and that is, do you love Jesus? Straightforward question, isn't it? But it's a really important one. Um, Christians love Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, you're not a Christian. Um, Love is the right response to what Jesus has done for us. There's just one problem. What does it mean to love Jesus? Uh, There's a a modern Christian song. It's from a band called New Direction. And in this chorus, what you do is you sing, I love Jesus eight times. And then it has this line, I'm in love with Jesus and he's in love with me. And you repeat that four times. The whole language is a little bit on the Jesus is my boyfriend side of things. And, and you can hit that every now and again. It's, it's what we think of when we say love, isn't it? It's the language of Hollywood. It's the, the language of this overwhelming emotion that, that sort of you can fall into and you can fall out of. Is that what it means to love Jesus? Because you can love different things in different ways. I I love my kids and I love my wife, but not in exactly the same way. I love Pavlova, uh, but I love it differently to how I love my friends. What we mean by love changes with the thing we are loving. Love needs to be appropriate to the object. So what do we mean when we say we love Jesus? Well, today we're going to that famous event in the Bible, the Battle of David and Goliath. People usually go to this story as a source of encouragement. Uh, Little boy David managed to defeat the giant Goliath, and so you can too. Um, But I actually think it's what happens after the battle that is a lot more telling. That's why we read chapter 18 rather than chapter 17. Because in chapter 18, most people responded what David has done with love. And I actually think that's the point of these chapters. So I'm going to suggest to you, chapter 16, we meet David, the king we should love. Chapter 17, we see why we should love him. And then chapter 18 shows us what loving David, loving God's king, looks like. And then how Israel loves David is how we should love Jesus. And that's where we're going. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us now to learn how to love Jesus and we pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened in that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first of all, the king we should love. Uh, A few weeks back, Israel asked for a king and they got Saul and it's become very clear that Saul is not the king Israel needs. He's all form, no substance. But from that moment that Saul failed, God has been talking about another king. All the way back when when Saul didn't wait for Samuel to turn up and make the sacrifice, um, God God said in 1 Samuel 13 verse 14, sorry girls, I forgot to get myself lined up, so I'm going to have to get you to bring up the readings. 1 Samuel 13 verse 14, um, Samuel says to Saul, Now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. All the way back then, God had planned another king. And then you get it last week in chapter 15, verse 27. Um, 
as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. God is choosing a new king, a better king, the king that Israel needs. The question that's sort of hanging all the way along is, who is that king? We don't know yet until we get to chapter 16. Uh, you might know the stories. Kids, can anyone tell me how many sons Jesse had? Anyone remember? Twelve? No? That was Jacob? Ten? Yeah. Eight. Well done. William's nailed it. There's eight sons in Jesse's family. Samuel rocks up. He's told by God to go and rock up. And the eight sons are paraded in front of him. It starts in verse 6, but verse 7 is key. Because here's Eliab, he's, he looks the part of the king. He's tall like Saul. He seems to have all the qualifications. But God says to Samuel, now I see differently to you. Uh, the original language actually says, humans see with the eyes, but God sees with the heart. Um, for an Israelite, the heart isn't the source of emotion. It's a place where you make choices. It's your will, your desire, your decision-making center. So God sees the world differently to us. We look at the outside, but God, he sort of chooses who is going to be his person. He, he just determines. And, he, and so we meet David, the eighth, the eighth son. And look, he's strong and he's attractive. Later on, we're told he's a great warrior. But it's clear he's not ready for battle yet. He's not the obvious candidate for king. But what's happened is we know now what most people don't. We know who this king is going to be. Unlike Saul, unlike the rest of Israel, we know God's heart, his choice of king. And then we see why we should love him. So the rest of 16 and 17, David is what Saul failed to be. You might remember back in chapters 10 to 12, I said Israel needed a king who was spirit-empowered and they needed a king who would follow God. That were the two criteria we sort of play out then. Well, look at the end of chapter 16. Now David is the king with God's spirit. From the very moment he's anointed, verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David's got God's Spirit, and Saul doesn't. Verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. David has what Saul has lost, and David has it better than Saul ever had, because Saul had it temporarily. Remember, he, he had that battle, and the Spirit came upon him, but then the Spirit seemed to leave, whereas this says that from that day on, David has God's Spirit. He's got the goods. David's the king that Israel should love because he's Spirit-empowered, and then he fights God's battle. He follows God, chapter 17. Now, people love to talk about a, a David and Goliath battle. I think I've got a photo um, that we can throw up. Uh, this was in the news recently. Um, here's an Australian citizen, and he's taking on a member of parliament, taking him to court. And, of course, how do they report it? It's a David and Goliath battle. And, in fact, I did a search on the news this year, and, like, the number of things you can find. So there's a local liquor store taking on Dan Murphy's. 
There's a David and Goliath battle. Um, a mum fought Ikea over the name of her business, David and Goliath battle. Uh, even every weekend, it seems, there's some football game, some sports event that is a David and Goliath battle because there's the major team and there's the minor team. But it, we use it to describe a situation where the little guy takes on the big guy and wins. But that's not the contrast going on in this chapter. It's not just a contrast between the big guy and the little guy. It's a contrast between David and pretty much everyone else, especially Saul. Have a look carefully. There, it's a big chapter. There are 54 verses, but the actual battle only takes 13 right at the end. A whole lot of this book chapter is all about showing who David is compared to everyone else. So first of all, we, have, uh, we meet the threat, the giant Goliath, in the first 11 verses. He's, what is it about Goliath, kids? What, what is the important thing to know about Goliath? Anyone want to tell me? He's giant. He's huge, nine feet. So if he came to our house, he'd sort of have to walk in with his head stooped. He is just that big. But it's not just that. He's got bronze armour on, and it's, it's plated armour. Um, remember, the Israelites, the only people who have swords is David and Jonathan. And here's this guy. He is basically a tank. He is impervious, impenetrable, and unbeatable. Verse, seven, like verse 4, sorry, chapter 17. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 57 kilograms, and he hasn't even picked up a, a sword or anything yet. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, which I'm not quite sure what that's like, but it must be impressive. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's seven kilos for the point of his spear. And his shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath is terrifying. He's overwhelming. But remember, this is why Israel wanted a king. They, they wanted a champion to go out and fight, lead them in battle. They wanted to go before them. And yet when Goliath comes out to challenge the Israelites, notice how Saul is silent. Verse 10. And the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Once again, Saul's failed. He's not the king Israel need. Instead, we meet David, and what stands out is how he sees the battle. He looks at this battle differently to everyone else. He sees this as, as God's battle. It's not that Goliath is insulting Israel. He's insulting the people of God. That's what matters to David. Have a look at verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David sees this battle from God's perspective. Because you know that God sees our world differently from us. It happens again and again where we just miss what's important. So we know... I mean, the, the, the classic one is we, we let our marriages fall apart because we're so focused on our job. Or, or we'll, we'll drop anything 
if school or a sports team says our kids need to be somewhere at a particular time, but sometimes we can treat youth and, and their spiritual growth as sort of that extra, that add-on. Or we struggle to find time for prayer. Or we can't quite find time to have a Christian friend around. We have this habit of not seeing the world the way God does, not seeing what's important. What stands out about David is that he does see it right. He sees this battle from God's perspective. Listen to verse 34. He even looks back on his shepherding days, not as a lesson of his strength, but as God's power. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand, literally the poor, of this Philistine. There's the contrast that matters. Had David seen things versus everyone else. So the contrast between David and Saul is, verse 38, Saul offers David his armour because Saul relies on human strength. The contrast between David and Goliath, verse 43, Goliath mocks David's weakness because Goliath relies on human strength. It's not about David's size. It's his perspective. He fights God's battle in God's name. Listen to him in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This day I will give your carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. And so David wins. And he wins triumphantly. And it's just so good, I've got to read it. So verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. You have got to love a win like that. You've got to love David, who wins like that. He's spirit-empowered and he fights God's barrel. He's got, he's got the right perspective. And that's what Israel does. They, they love David's victory, chapter 18. What does it look like? What does it look like when you rejoice in David's victory? Well, you make him your king. So the really interesting moment is right at the start there, Saul's son, Jonathan. He loves David. People want to make this into a sexual thing. It's just ridiculous. It's a sad reflection of our society that that any expression of love has to have this sexual connotation. It just makes relationships so shallow. Jonathan is the guy with substance. Back in chapter 14, he, he was the one who went and fought the battle. He had no form, but he trusted God could give him the battle. So he's just seen David win, 
And he loves it. Here's a guy who has God's heart. And how does he express his love? He gives up his right to rule. I mean, this guy is heir to the throne. He, he has every right to it, and he pretty much just hands the whole kingdom over to David. Verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. That's what it means to love David. It means you've got the right to the throne, but you let him have it. You, you, you hand over everything to him because he's, he's the king you really want. And that's exactly what Saul fails to do in the rest of the chapter. See, instead of welcoming God's king, he just fights. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him commander of a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaign. David, Saul wants David dead. So he, he sends him off to battle. He tries to spear him. He even gives his, David his daughter in marriage, not because he promised it back to the person who would win the battle back in the previous chapter. No, he gives the daughter to David, hoping that the bride price of all these Philistine foreskins would actually lead to David's death. Saul doesn't love David. He wants David dead. Finish with verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. See, once David's defeated Goliath, the people have a choice. They can love David or they can want him dead. Now, I just want to stop and make this application. I've said this a few times before, but I think it's always worth saying. When we read Bible passages, especially Old Testament stories, it's so tempting to, to want to be like the hero, to learn, think we can aspire to be the hero. And that's why people keep talking about the David and Goliath battle. We all want to be David. But I reckon the person we should follow in this story is Jonathan. God hasn't chosen us to be king. It's not like we can slip into the shoes of David, but having seen the king that God chooses, we can certainly decide whether to welcome him, love him, or reject him. Which leads us to Jesus. Uh, years later, God's chosen king did arrive. He was spirit-empowered, and he fought God's battle. He fought it on the cross. And the question that people had to decide was, would they love him? I mean, the Pharisees chose not to. They, they rejected his claim to kingship. They ended up being the ones that drove him to death. But if we can have up John 14, verse 15 on the screen, Jesus said to his disciples and to us, if you love me, keep my commands. Let me be king. Let me be king in your life. So, do you love Jesus? I think you should. Uh, Jesus didn't fight a battle with just a human giant. Jesus fought a battle with sin and death. He fought a battle with Satan. 
And that is an enemy you should be terrified by. So in my line of work, um, I'm privileged to, to work, be with people in hospital as they are dying. I've sat beside beds of people who are close to death. I've walked with someone, like been on call for them over a number of months as they've been in palliative care, awaiting death. Death is an enemy we should fear. Death mocks God far more than Goliath ever did. It mocks our lives. We become this pale reflection of our true selves, our nobleness, our wisdom, our ability. They're all going. Jesus has defeated death. And beyond that, uh, Jesus has defeated sin and Satan. The reason we don't see the world the way God sees the world is we are just keeping fed lies, the wrong perspective on what's important in this world. Satan is just so influential. Jesus has defeated Satan. The cross means Satan will not win. Do you see the cross from God's perspective? Do you see all that Jesus has done for you? And if you see it, do you love Jesus? Do you do what he says? Or are you still fighting to stay in charge? It's a simple decision, but it's so important. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that Jesus is the king you have chosen.